Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. To continue our series on American identities, for today's episode, we'll be hearing from art historian Angela Miller. Dr. Miller's research and teaching focuses on the cultural history of 19th and 20th century American arts. As she'll describe, over time, art and visual culture has helped to both construct and question the idea of nationhood in the United States. You'll be able to see the works of art that Miller discusses on Hold That Thought's website. Now, in the past, and even up to today, when many people think of art history in relation to nationhood, they think of the history of the East Coast and European migrations to the New World. But according to Miller, this view is incomplete. The material and cultural histories of the nation, I think, tell a very different story, a story that is really a mosaic of different distinct identities and regional and ethnic cultures. We forget, for instance, that Santa Fe in the Southwest was established 10 years before Plymouth Rock. (laughs) This focus on New England as the birthplace of American identity is itself an artifact, part of a story about nationhood that was established in the 18th century. I think a lot of this history is motivated by the fact that the founding generation of the nation state really, and forward into the federal period, really need to construct an American tradition that has some sort of coherence. So this founding generation, seeking to define what it meant to be American, turned in part to the ideals of the Enlightenment. These ideas came up in the Declaration of Independence, for example. The Enlightenment bequeaths a sort of understanding of certain universal principles that are grounded in reason. But the nation-state, in order to really take hold of the imagination of this new body of Republican citizens, needs something more than abstract principles. It needs something that is emotionally gripping. It needs something that will draw in the affective loyalties of American citizens. Enter the arts, specifically civic arts. An example is a portrait of George Washington painted by Gilbert Stuart in 1796, titled The Lansdowne Portrait. You can see Stuart's painting and others that Miller will discuss on Hold That Thought's website. In the portrait, Washington stands behind an ornate table and chair. There's nothing really to tell us that he isn't a member of the French royalty here. He's standing uh, in this very elaborate uh, setting of columns and elaborate fixtures of state, gesturing towards us, holding a sword. This depiction of George Washington is part of a tradition that's helping to create an abstract civic identity for the new nation. But of course, the relationship between nationhood and the arts isn't limited to portraiture. At the beginning of the 19th century, we have a whole new range of subject matter and attitudes appearing in the fine arts, focusing on places as much as people. Landscape painting really takes shape beginning in the 1820s and then reaching its height in the 1850s. And the focus of this new phase of American arts is really to ground these abstract principles of Republican nationhood in something that is more tangible, more immediate, something that would, in other words, stir the aesthetic pride of Americans in their own continent and what makes them different from from Europe. 
So these landscapes grounded American patriotism into the land itself. Citizens of the new United States maybe didn't have the long history of their European counterparts, but they did have beautiful natural landscapes and grand hopes for the future. This relationship between landscape and patriotism continued into the 1860s and beyond. With the coming of the uh, Civil War, it's fascinating to observe how, with this growth in sectional tensions, the war clouds looming, the natural landscape of the United States, especially the northern U.S., is recruited in the cause of the American North. For an example, we turn to the 1861 painting, Our Banner in the Sky, by Frederick Church. He grounds the Union in nature itself. You have this image of a flag, an American flag, that is formed by bits of blue, bits of uh, white striated clouds, a star, a tree that together collectively form a very readable image of the flag of the Union. So he's sort of linking the nation and the embattled condition of the nation on the brink of war in nature uh, with the assumption that nature is providentially blessed in the North. In addition to landscape paintings, an area of the arts called genre painting also helped depict and construct American identities. At this time, the American art scene was primarily based in New York, but genre paintings depicted everyday scenes from urban and rural settings across the country, and they included groups of people, such as African Americans, that you might not have found in other areas of the fine arts. What genre painting does is to promote social recognition by Americans of other Americans. And it often does this in very humorous ways. It plays a kind of good-natured game of difference and identity. An example is War News from Mexico, an 1848 painting by Richard Caton Woodville. The painting depicts well-dressed Western citizens standing under a porch, which is called the American Hotel, very symbolically it's the House of Union, and then on the outside of that porch of Union, you have women and black non-citizens. The people on the porch are reading a newspaper, which, by the look on their faces, contains some shocking news about the ongoing U.S.-Mexican War. And it's clearly a, really about the form and the shape that the new republic is going to take as it expands westward. And the clear question that Woodville is raising here is the extent to which this new expansion of national territory is going to include women and other sectors of the population that have been excluded from the definition of the nation up to that point. So genre paintings presented different versions of the nation through narratives of everyday life. War News from Mexico is just one example of the type of narrative depicted. In other genre paintings from these years, you have artists such as David Gilmore Blythe, who had a very bleak and cynical, but rather humorous view of uh, the Republic and had a kind of laser-like eye for the hypocrisies of American claims to equality and justice. In a painting called Post Office, he creates a kind of allegory of the Republic as a general delivery post office. But what you see here is a mad scramble of American citizens, supposedly, to grab their share of the public goods that are offered by the Republic, but it's a scramble that involves 
pickpocketing, and then you have people spying on one another. You have a general sense of disorder and confusion that belies the uh, myth of a republic that is grounded in reason and order. In our conversation, Miller pointed out that the fine arts use symbols to create a kind of representational unity that appeals to all Americans. Think about Stuart's portrait of George Washington that we were talking about a little while ago. However, she challenges us to think about who and what is actually represented in these works of art and whose stories are not being told. What we often forget as we traipse through the museums and look at these images is the extent to which many of the most myth-making images from the fine arts tradition really do not represent the, the full diversity of the nation. It's, it's working class people, it's ethnic others, and it's regional diversity. And I think genre painting is beginning to allow glimpses into that broader diversity. In order to delve more thoroughly into the complexity of the American arts, Miller led a team of six scholars to create the survey text American Encounters, Art, History, and Cultural Identity. Throughout this huge text, it's important to think about one word in particular from the title, encounter. So the idea of encounter is really taking issue with older ideas of the influence, because influence assumes a hierarchy of center over periphery, and it assumes that there are certain great figures that ground the artistic tradition, and it also assumes a hierarchy of colonizer over colonized. And what the model of encounter and exchange did for us, much better than those older art historical notions of influence, was to establish a kind of two-way model of the process of cultural change. That there are always at least two parties to the encounter between cultures, and each party has something to offer the other. So far, Miller has mostly discussed the fine arts tradition in the U.S., but in American Encounters and in her own research and teaching, she also focuses on the vernacular and folk art traditions, going back to before the creation of the nation-state. In these traditions, the idea of encounter can play a prominent role. A um, very good example of this is the pipe tomahawk, which is one of my very favorite objects from our survey text. And it dates from the frontier of cultural encounter in the upper Northwest uh, in the late 18th century. And this object really embodies this process of exchange and transformation because it itself is an object that comes from native cultures. It's a tomahawk. But this tomahawk is combined with a pipe. So you have these two very different propositions. You have war on the one hand, and you have peace. You have cleaving skulls of your enemies, and you have diplomacy and peacemaking. So this object would have been used during a physical encounter or meeting between groups. But its design and materials reveal even more about the idea of encounter. So the object itself also embodies these two cultures who meet through it because it incorporates native beadwork on the shaft and it also incorporates European symbols and metal engraving on the hatchet. With examples like these, Miller and her colleagues approached the idea of American art from what they called a post-national perspective. Overall, this approach recognizes the creation and reception of American art within a global context. 
It moves beyond the idea that national art represents a single national identity. You know, if you look at the whole extent, the whole long history of the emergence of cultures in the New World, it goes back some 15,000 years, arguably even much longer than that. So when you look at this longer history of cultures in the New World, the nation state is actually just a tiny little blip on the screen. But what a post-national perspective brings is to locate that episode of the nation state within this much longer history and also to see the Americas in relation to global trade and exchange rather than in relation to its own insular histories of the nation state. So, as we've heard throughout this series, there is no one American identity or common culture. Americans are simultaneously part of something much more global and much more individualized. People's identities as citizens of the Republic, that's only one small identity that they have. And we're beginning within American studies to understand the multiplicity of identities that shape who we are as members of the nation state, but also as what are our familial affiliations, what are our ethnic, religious, sexual affiliations, what are our you know, our broadest kinds of effective ties that really transcend this notion that we are citizens of a nation state and open up these different kinds of of histories. Many thanks to Angela Miller for contributing to Hold That Thought. Once again, all of the images brought up in this episode and more can be seen on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. Thanks for listening.